Live from the Nasdaq market site in New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, we are all over the after-hours action shares of Netflix and United. Both stocks on the move right now on earnings. We're breaking down their quarters straight ahead. Plus, a blockbuster debut for the world's first Bitcoin futures ETF. Trading volume off the charts, but it was another move in crypto land that really caught our eye today. We'll bring it to you. And later, a retail rumble. One top analyst adding Walmart to its conviction buy list while booting Target. Find out where our traders stand on this big box battle. But we start off with an earnings alert on Netflix shares giving up all of the after-hours games. The company's call kicking off at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Let's get straight to Julia Borson with a breakdown of the quarter. Julia. Well, Melissa, Netflix beating expectations with 4.4 million new subscribers in the quarter. It had forecast just 3.5 million. Though in the U.S. and Canada, its growth was much slower. It added just 70,000 new subscribers in the quarter. Its guidance of 8.5 million new subscribers in Q4, that was right in line with expectations. The company is saying it's seeing the positive effects of a stronger slate in the second half of the year, disclosing that Squid Game has now been watched by 142 million member households in its first four weeks. That is, of course, a record. Also saying that they expect the fourth quarter to be the strongest fourth quarter content offering yet. They also anticipate a more normalized content slate next year with more originals than this year and a release schedule that's more balanced. That's unlike this year where the content was really pushed into the second half. Netflix also talking about the variety of companies it competes with, writing in this letter to shareholders, quote, on October 4th, when Facebook experienced a global outage for several hours, our engagement saw a 14 percent increase. Now, at the same time, Netflix also noted that the service is still relatively small, accounting for less than 10 percent of U.S. TV screen time. So to give a better sense of that screen time, the company disclosing that it will shift to reporting hours viewed rather than the number of accounts that chose to watch a particular show. And it will release more viewing metrics more regularly. Melissa. All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borson. Um, Let's get right to this trade. The setup was interesting guy, as we like to say, up 20 percent in the past three months. Here we are sort of holding the line at at break even. Not not too bad of a reaction, all things considered. Yeah, no, I thought the quarter was uh, very strong. Given how mature this company is, you're still seeing decent growth. And oh, by the way, now they're starting to see it on the operating margin line of things, which was up to 23 and a half percent. Tim can wax poetic about ARPUs. And, you know, when Facebook went down, Mel, I think you just tweeted out that Netflix saw a huge... um, exodus, I guess, from that platform to there. So you see where people are going. You see where people are. It's all great. And listen, as Tim has pointed out a number of times, Netflix has been in a very well-defined range from July of last year until September, and we have broken out. The problem here is the run we've had since September, and the fourth quarter guide was just lousy. I mean, there's no other word to describe it. It would make sense to see this stock trade back down to that sort of September top, which was 605 606. That would make a lot of sense. And by the way, that would be the healthiest thing for the stock. Uh, We talked about it last night, and I'm going to stick by that. There has been a lot of talk about Squid Game. And we've talked about it on the show here. We've given viewers the sort of, you know, Squid Game for Dummies version in case you haven't watched it, um, Dan. But at the same time, Squid Game was released at the end of September. So the benefits of that in terms of added subscribe, we might not fully see that until the next quarter, even the quarter afterwards. 
Yeah, I think so. And I think I speak to that Q4 guide where, you know, it's up sequentially, um, you know, close to 100% from those numbers at a little over 4 million um, paid subscribers here. I, I would just mention this, and this is purely anecdotal. I went and saw a movie in the theaters. I saw the Bond movie last weekend. I'm going to go see Dune this coming weekend. I'm going to see a lot of movies. And we only have so much time to watch some of this stuff. So to me, I think as some of these shows, you know, kind of move back away from this kind of hybrid model of release, I think you're going to see some fits and starts as it relates to their subs. And if they're telling you that a lot of stuff is not coming until 2022, you might see some softness. And so I think what you guys are talking about is this massive move up 26% from the lows in August, up 13% just in the last month or so. I think it anticipates a lot of good news. And I'll also tell you about mega cap tech in general. Um, for some of these companies that are really not in the crosshairs of some of these bottlenecks as it relates to supply chains, um, we are going to see some lumpiness and we're going to see some um, like kind of weird visibility as you will and I don't think Netflix management wanted to get ahead of their skis right here so the fact that stocks unchanged on that Q4 guide is kind of bullish but I'm with Guy to see this thing settle in after a big run and after that guidance makes a lot of sense maybe somewhere closer okay. to 600. Are we anticipating too much good news Tim? I mean to, to use a term that Carter Braxton Worth likes to use a stock has basically been fallow until the past few months or so. <laughs> So is, are we talking about a huge run? Are we talking about finally investors recognizing the path ahead in terms of the dominance? That we were just talking about Disney yesterday, the dominance it has in streaming. And I can see, I can hear Carter in the dulcet tones again saying that. And, 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 but I think what we're talking about in terms of the setup for the stock is that it was a year of dead money from July of 2020 to July of 2021. You finally broke through that. And, and I know Tom Rogers, is, who's had a great call on the stock, is about to give us some of the reasons why. The three things I heard, uh, in, at least on the, that hit the tape, that I thought were the most impressive are, first of all, talking about a production cost advantage to peers. Uh, two, talking about uh, technology as a cost per revenue going down. So in other words, economies of scale. And then it leads to the third thing, which is the most impressive to me, which I've been most critical of, NASDA, uh, of, of Netflix, excuse me, um, is that they will be free cash flow positive in 22 and beyond. So this is a company that, to me, uh, is now starting to talk about profitability and at least giving you some sense of where they can actually turn the screws on, whether it's ARPU guy or whether it's other places. That, to me, is the most impressive. We didn't even hear them talk about gaming. I think that's another upside for the stock. So again, the profitability that was discussed here, we all know that subs uh, had been pulled forward and that there's some negative pressure. Um, I don't care about that. So what's in the bear case at this point, Karen? I mean, for so long, there's so many bears, right? The content costs, it's, got to, it's relying on outside capital. capital. It, a lot of those things have gone away. Is it just valuation at this point? It, to me, it's just valuation. Also, I guess it's that, so they really had this first mover advantage. They did a fantastic job keeping that and even, you know, getting, uh, accelerating. And so the, the landscape now has gotten more competitive. That would be, I guess, another, another part of a bear thesis. To me, it's just valuation, but I wouldn't be short it. Uh, and the, to me, the most interesting thing also, I agree with Tim, the idea of profitability here, which has been sort of a pie in the sky, one day they will. And so that's sort of interesting to me. And on the content creation, they've done a phenomenal job. So I, I wouldn't be short, but... Um, there's a few things you can do to make a bear case. I'm not making it. I'm just, I mean, it's been really impressive. I actually think that fourth quarter wasn't terrible. They're not great at guiding. They don't, they don't 
often give, uh, you know, they don't under, um, overpromise and underdeliver. So I didn't think that fourth quarter guide was bad, actually. Yeah. Um, in terms of competition, Guy, does competition, is that, obviously it's a threat on some, some level, but on some level, does it also show that Netflix is really just trouncing everyone at this point? I mean, in terms of getting that, that content costs under control, in terms of being able to source content, in terms of the technology that Tim was talking about? Absolutely. It's without question, and that's been the case for quite some time. Obviously, people are trying to get into the space, and we talk about Disney all the time, and that's wonderful, but as Karen just mentioned, the first mover advantage here is formidable. And it's, I, you know, I've said this, I'll say it again, I'm sure Tom, who if I don't get the opportunity to say it after he's on, is a total here we stud. Go. His wax poetic about this. I mean, <laughs> it's Netflix world and everybody else is playing in it. And that's, that is continued. Listen, I'm not casting aspersions here by any stretch. You know, my point is, as everybody's point has been, you've had a big run since September. It makes sense to have a bit of a pullback on the back of what I thought was a lousy guide. Karen doesn't think it's that bad. But 605, if we get down there again, you buy it with both hands. Seems like the perfect time to intro Tom Rogers, who is, of course, a fast money friend. We <laughs> want to get his take on the Netflix quarter. Tom Rogers used to run TiVo. He is now the executive chairman of Engine Gaming and Media and a CNBC contributor. Also, as Guy mentioned, a stud in his view, at least. Uh, Tom, great to see you. I don't know how to live up to that billing. <laughs> I uh, know. You know I, I, I am stud ends, otherwise <laughs> pronounced students of this whole panel. So the idea that I'm the stud here is a little bit off. Uh, but uh, Netflix was not off for the quarter, a strong quarter. Um, I've been pretty consistent on this show that I believe it is in a category by itself. And uh, there's nothing about this quarter that uh, dissuades me from this view. Uh, it uh, just has a model down now that uh, none of the other companies, including Disney, has the size of its content budget, its ability to, to maintain engagement with, with all this competition. Its churn is much lower. Its average revenue uh, per sub just continues to grow. It attracts all demographics. It's not younger skewing and uh, having troubles applying, uh, uh, finding uh, older demographics. Uh, so the, the model is very much intact. And there's some things here which really uh, show the contrast with others. Uh, Disney gets most often compared to it. Uh, look at Asia. You're now talking about average revenue per sub of Disney in Asia, about 50 cents. Netflix is coming in at about 20 times that in the Asian market. People are taking shots that uh, growth in the U.S. is slow. But at 74 million, that's how many cable satellite subs there are in this country. And Netflix hasn't uh, capped out at that kind of number. It's got the demographics behind it. As younger and younger household formation occurs, uh, people aren't going to have cable satellite. They're going to have uh, streaming. And Netflix is going to have the pole position and be in every streaming home. Right. So there's nothing here that dissuades me from the view that this is the winner among all media companies by far. So how does it stay on top, Tom? I mean, when you when you think about things like getting into gaming, for instance, is that the way? How do you how do you see Netflix maintaining what you seem to think is a sizable and perhaps insurmountable lead over its competitors? Well, first, continue to do what it's doing. When you can introduce where it's getting to in its content budget, a new movie or a new show 
every day. You're going to uh, you're not going to have a squid game uh, every show by any means. But the odds are you are going to have far more shots on goal. And with that, uh, far more really super hits than anybody else. Uh, and I think we're seeing that on the TV show side. Remember, they won more Emmy Awards than any network has in the history of television in a single season. So we're talking about quality here overall. Uh, but we haven't really seen them come out with movies with the same kind of cultural impact that they've had with TV. And I think we will begin to see a focus on that, and that will certainly uh, spur things forward. Um, I, I think the interesting thing about Squid Game is it is a uh, television show which lends itself so well to gaming. Now, others are taking advantage of that gaming like Roblox before Netflix is, but it shows that they can put together uh, television that will drive that gaming business, and that's obviously a huge additional way to drive engagement, particularly among younger demographics. Tom, that was going to be my question. How important is gaming? You know, I've said Reed Hastings is one of probably the most underrated CEOs in the country, and, you know, you give them the benefit of the doubt. Getting into gaming, a lot of people say maybe they're taking their eye off the ball. I think it's a huge opportunity, but is there a way to quantify what that potentially could mean to Netflix? Well, I agree with you. It, it, it's not taking eye off the ball because it's all about where, where are the eyes of younger demographics. And, you know, older demographics are still watching six hours a day of TV, but younger demographics are down to about two hours. And where are they going? They're, larger, they're going to the gaming, uh, some social media as well. But gaming is a big chunk of that. So if you want to maintain your relevance as a media company serving all demographics, and remember, Netflix is beating Disney when it comes to engaging young people. That's something people forget. Oh, everybody thinks Disney's the juggernaut of the younger demographic. It's not. Netflix is, is, is beating them there. And I think what it has its eye on is how do they maintain that advantage among younger demos? You got to move to where younger demos are. I think the other thing that's really striking here is with all the additional competition that has come in, uh, Net, uh, Netflix engagement of audience in terms of time spent went from about four times Disney's uh, in the quarter to about six times Disney Plus in the quarter. So they're actually growing that advantage, understanding uh, where that younger skew is and being able to serve it. And video games, just a huge way to do it. Uh, it's hard to quantify because they're being very explicit that they're not going to take uh, in-app gaming revenue. They're not going to have incremental subscription. But I think what it will allow them to do is continue to raise price over time. On average, they their revenue per sub went up 7% worldwide, worldwide in the corner. And Disney's declined 25%. So there's just a lot here to look at to see how well they are managing this model relative to everybody else. Tom, it's always great to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tom Rogers. All right, Dan Nathan, what will you listen for in this? And I don't want to say call because it's not really a call. It's like a presentation. The questions are already sent in, et cetera. So, so what, what are you listening for? 
Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Guy brought up gaming, and we know that Reed Hastings had said that their biggest competition is not Disney and the like. This was a couple years ago. It's it's just the kind of attention for eyeballs and gaming, and they went and made a move. I think Tom just brought up their success in movies. We think back to 2019. They had The Irishman. They had all the guys' favorites, Scorsese directing, and Pesci, and De Niro, and Pacino. And the thing was kind of a bomb, right? But then they take this thing, this foreign language thing from South Korea for $21 million, and it creates tremendous amount of value close to a billion dollars and you can't forecast that so i would say as movies are coming back online i think disney definitely has an upper hand when you think of the franchises they have if that's going to be a more of a competitive threat outside the home as we get past this pandemic so that's going to be important to me the irishman was like 10 hours long i mean i think that was the problem with that movie but um anyway we want to get to the story of the day here the world's first bitcoin futures etf surging 4.7 percent in its big trading debut more than 23 million shares changed hands making it one of the busiest etf debuts ever bitcoin itself getting a little boost today the cryptocurrency closing on its high record high of sixty four thousand eight hundred ninety nine dollars and check out the move in Coinbase. That stock rallying another 4%. Shares are now up nearly 25% in just the past month. Tim, this is one that you flagged earlier. I, I've got, yeah, I've got it up 37% in 11 sessions. And, and this is, if you look at the correlation between Coinbase and Bitcoin historically, it was almost one-to-one. And, and the fact that Bitcoin has had this rally that's now well-documented, we've talked about it on the show, there's a number of different reasons. Coinbase had done nothing for a long time. Uh, and again, so I just think that uh, the, the laggard effect, both to the, call it its underlying currency, but also the fact that now more regulation is good. As far as I'm concerned, um, for not only the, the, the Bitcoin and the crypto players getting the SEC more involved, but obviously regulated products, uh, Coinbase's audience and their investors and their platform are folks that are going to continue to be very active in the space and want more access to products and want more ability. Look, I think their, their engagement and the stickiness of of that investor base, uh, of that user base, is something that is a huge advantage here. Um, and I think that demo is something that plays their advantage. But clearly, again, cheap to, 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 to Bitcoin prices, that's part of the story. I know this is one that you noticed, Guy. MicroStrategy um, was down a little bit more than a percent today. Maybe, maybe it was a source of funds in some way? Maybe. It definitely could. No question about it. I mean, people looking to you know finance or pay for getting into their crypto vis-a-vis this ETF. It makes a lot of sense. I, again, don't. I think you bet against, at this point, Michael Saylor at your own peril in the form of MSTR. I think, if I'm not mistaken, they have about 108,000 or so Bitcoin on their balance sheet. That number's only going to continue probably to go up. So there's a way to play uh, Bitcoin in stocks. But to your point about today specifically, I think it's exactly that, a source of funds for today. All right, still ahead, we are revving up for Tesla, that stock on a tear as it heads into earnings. And top-ranked analyst Adam Jonas says get ready for Tesla to hit the fast lane when those numbers cross the wire. He'll join us exclusively straight ahead. But first, we're all over the after-hours action. Shares of United, the stock is higher after earnings. will bring you the big headlines from the quarter when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got another earnings alert, this time on United Airlines. The stock is popping after its results. Let's get to Phil LeBeau, who's got the details. Phil. 
Melissa, shares are moving higher for United because those Q3 numbers, a little better than expected. Yes, it was a loss for the third quarter, a dollar to a share on an adjusted basis. The estimate was for a loss of a buck 67 with revenue coming in at $7.75 billion, a little better than expected, which was $7.63 billion. One fact that people should keep in mind in terms of the third quarter, fuel costs up 63% compared to a year ago, but it's the projections for the fourth quarter people are interested in. They are saying they expect negative margins. So yes, another quarter where they're losing money. Q4 revenue will be down 25 to 30%. That's an improvement over Q3, which was down 32% on the revenue side on capacity being down 23% in the fourth quarter. Two other notes regarding United as you take a look at shares over the last year. First of all, the company is not giving a target date for when it expects to be profitable. Will that be in Q1, Q2? When will it happen in 2022? And also the company is saying that it is seeing strengthening in both international and corporate bookings. How much have these uh, bookings improved? The company's not giving us a percentage at this point. That's certainly one of the questions we have for CEO Scott Kirby. You do not want to miss when we have a chance to talk with him tomorrow morning on Squawk Box. Hear from him first on Squawk before he even talks with the analyst during the conference call. Scott Kirby tomorrow morning, 745. And yes, we will be asking him how much have corporate and international bookings improved and what do you expect for the holiday season? Melissa, back to you. I hope you get answers, Phil. Um, I want to ask you about the fuel costs. Usually we see fuel surcharges. Has the dynamics in the market changed such that it, it can't pass the full cost to the consumer anymore? They think that they can still, maybe not the full cost, but they are going to be passing along these costs to the consumer. What's interesting when you look at these fuel costs, yes, yeah, 63% year over year is a huge increase. Take a look at compared to Q3 of 2019, it's up, I think, 5.6%. So it's not a huge increase compared to two years ago, but anytime you see an increase of 63%, that does raise the question, how much of that can you pass on to the consumer? And yes, some of it will be passed on to the consumer. All right. Phil, thank you. Look forward to the interview with the CEO, Phil LeBeau. Um, Tim Seymour, how do you trade this one? Well, stock on the chart, you know, before this announcement was, you know, broke through the 50, not a great looking chart. Uh, it's certainly a function of where you're going to start to see demand come on. Look, hearing about international capacity growing 10% next year, very exciting. That's high profitable business. Uh, it tends to be the front of the bus, tends to be business. Uh, I think this is something that people should be starting to focus on. The fact that the costs are coming, or CASM, we love all these acronyms in the airline world, but cost per available seat miles are actually going to be below 2019 levels by next year is impressive. So again, they, they probably taken some of COVID to you know, become leaner and meaner, but more importantly, getting more aircraft back into service actually reduces overall costs. And I think these are things that are not entirely priced into this stock. I think you have to like airlines longer term here. I like how Tim Arpoot in, in the first block and then chasmed in the B block. He's really on a roll. What I do. See what he pulls out in the C block. <laughs> um, Karen, how do you think about the fuel costs and the impact on the consumer? I mean, consumers are already faced with, you know, travel, I don't know, worries, and then they've got rising costs. And so here's another cost slapped on them. Right. I don't think the fuel costs or the fuel cost surcharge will be enough to dissuade people who haven't traveled a long time who really want to. So I think they'll be able to pass that on. I think Tim's point about chasm actually is a really interesting one in that if they're below 2019, as you know, the expression never let a crisis go to waste and the pandemic may have been that for them, for them to really 
you know, run the business more efficiently. And then if you get some revenue growth, then you'll get more profitability. So good for them. I'm not long, though, for me. I've made my sort of reopen bet in Live Nation, which I think is about as, you know, correlated as you can get. But uh, the thing, the, the flip side, though, of all that chasm reduction, though, is the balance sheet with the debt, which I find hard to ignore three chasms from Karen in, in one go. All right, we're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Buckle up. Tesla earnings on deck. Top-ranked analyst Adam Jonas says get ready for revved-up profits. He joins us ahead. Plus, a retail rumble. The big battle line drawn between Walmart and Target. Find out which corner our traders are in. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at shares of Tesla surging 14% over the past month. The electric automaker reports quarterly results tomorrow after the bell. And one top analyst says buckle up because Tesla will likely deliver some revved up profits. Adam Jonas follows Tesla from Morgan Stanley. He joins us now. Adam, great to have you with us. Thanks, Melissa. Um, so it's interesting because you have a $900 12-month price target on the stock. The stock is pretty close to that, and yet you're saying that there are a number of things that the market is underestimating about Tesla. Um, so it, it seems like the market is actually factoring in a lot at this point, <laughs> given where your price target is and where the stock is. Yeah, I mean, credit to your audience uh, can move a lot faster than the sell side yet again, <laughs> right? Um, so we just keep an open mind. Let's see what we learn from the quarter. Uh, I don't I think I think what's going on with Tesla is bigger than the quarter, though. It's you know, we have a trillion dollar company and an arms race of batteries and tech and talent. And how do they use that stack? Right. So that'll be the that'll be the judge. But just for sensitivity's sake. Um, so we're not locked into 900 either way. Just rough sensitivity. Each million units that you give Tesla by 2030 is worth about 150 to 200 bucks. Right now we're at 5.8 million by 2030. So. You know, if you want to take that to 10 million, some people do. We're not there yet. You know, that's that's one of a number of ways you could get some um, leverage on top of that. Among the items that you think the market is underestimating, Adam, is manufacturing and scale. And I, I feel like they go hand in hand. Are we going to get any sort of glimmers of this, particularly what you mentioned is being the gigapress, the notion that an entire chassis could be made out of a single piece of material? I mean, that's that would be incredible. Isn't that bonkers? I mean, that's what this... That's what this guy wants to do. So while other car companies try to look at ways of how can they use their existing body shop and robots in line, they look at something like Gigapress and they, they think we can't do anything with it. How did Elon do that? And believe me, they're all tearing down the Model Y and looking at what he's doing with the back half of the chassis and thinking, how the heck, how does he do the whole thing? Elon can kind of experiment and use each new factory as a chance to optimize automation, vertical integration, and these you know really profound things, right? Again, it, it harkens back to the moving assembly line. And what We might have already had the Model T moment in electric, but we haven't had the moving assembly line revolution of manufacturing that took the car down to $3,000 in today's dollars from 80. And so Elon is, I think the good judge of whether he's successful is can you get a car that can go on sale in India? If Elon Musk is doing a selfie with Modi, uh, talking about turning India into a renewable super state for a $15,000 car in India, that among a wide range of things would be a, all right, yeah, you, you now, now you're getting serious. Adam, it's Karen. Thanks so much for being on. Can anyone or any group of companies, you know, Ford, GM, uh, VW together, 
catch up with Tesla in the next decade? Well, it's going to be real hard in their current form. Uh, we don't want to count them out. There's a lot of invested capital in Detroit and Nagoya and Munich and elsewhere. And they'll certainly get some support of the local governments and policies. Um, I think Elon would like to see those com companies like that and others thrive and do well. I think he knows that he's not trying to destroy them. Um, I think that he's making them better. Uh, and you could you could look and see what how Volkswagen's talked about that too. And you know, and he's he's given time to them and others. So um, in their current form, very very challenging because of the skills transferability. But I think they occupy different risk rewards. I think survival would be a, a good case, and then something that can keep up with the stock market could be excellent. Um, but if you really want to be a compounder that can have unlimited access to capital and get the best people solving the hardest problems, decarbonization and autonomy, it's very, very tough to hang with Tesla. To this point, no one else we don't see to this point has not happened. AJ, they put a lot of eggs in yeah. the China basket. Is that concerning given what's going on there? Yes, uh, I think expectations around China have been dialed back a lot. Um, I think that the narrative, narrative over the next few quarters will be growth outside of China, India, Vietnam, Eastern Europe, the UK, ASEAN, maybe even Oz, you know, Australia, it's possible. So I think that geographic um, diversification outside of China is where you're going to see. And then also um, vehicle platforms and vehicle models. I mean, they just what, unveiled an ATV. Uh, we're looking for multiple body styles. But I think, frankly, what we haven't talked about, and I don't know, maybe we can save it for another time, is, you know, those correlations with Bitcoin. I mean, the stock, we, we looked the last five years, the correlation between Tesla and Bitcoin is 0.9, is 0.85 year to date. And I think even things like SpaceX, I mean, that's what our clients, we've been getting more incoming calls over the last two days about SpaceX and what that could even mean for Tesla than Tesla's third quarter itself. But again, I don't want to get, I don't want to get too far off piece for you here. <laughs> no, I, I want to ask you one question about that. Mm -hmm. Since you're getting so many calls and there is investor interest in space at large, what could it mean for Tesla? If it went public, what, what would that mean? And, and is there a risk that Elon Musk goes to, devotes his time to SpaceX? Is that a risk to Tesla? So I won't comment on it going public or anything like that, um, except to say that when you reach $100 billion in a private market, it, isn't it, Melissa, isn't it kind of a fait accompli that the market's saying you're going to be a huge company and in order to do the things to justify that, it requires access to capital. So that's all I'm going to say there, you know, fait accompli. I think for Tesla, the relevance is, dude, you, you're putting 100 tons in orbit and you might be and you're probably going to beat NASA to the moon. Are you do you really doubt that he's going to solve insurance for cars? Is that the world's hardest problem? So it's just that it's about capability. Right. And, and beyond the PowerPoint deck. As far as spending time, I think Elon Musk spending time on, on SpaceX is a sign of, I think it's a wonderful thing if Tesla can be a, at a point where he can say, you take it from here, I'll, I'll be involved, but I'm going to be spending time in Texas building the space economy and taking, you know, taking the U.S. and the space race to a whole new level. That's what's really capturing the imagination, I think, of your audience and frankly, my, my audience on the institutional investor side. 
when you put it like that, Adam, it does seem like solving car insurance is going to be a pretty simple task. (laughs) Great to speak with you, Adam. Thank you so much. Adam Jonas, Morgan Stanley. Tesla, by the way, has also been electrifying the options market. Listen to this stat. Tesla has been the most active single stock option traded in the world for 20 straight days. Let's bring in Mike Coe, who spotted this. Mike, how rare is this? Yeah, well, I mean, how rare is it for something to be number one for a month? I mean, uh, Tesla obviously has attracted the attention of equity and options traders for quite a while now. It has averaged over 1.32 million contracts a day. Of course, options contracts represent 100 shares, so that's basically 132 million uh, shares worth of options that are trading on average over the past 20 trading days. Now, there are other stocks that have approached that same number, but the thing is their share prices are considerably lower. So if you take a look at Apple, which was second place uh, over the last 20 days on average and traded about 300,000 contracts a day less, the share price is considerably less as well. So when you take a look at those two things, Tesla is sort of a runaway winner in this respect. And you know what we've seen going into earnings, which obviously we have coming right up, typically this is a stock that has moved quite a lot on average, nearly 10% from about a day or two before earnings until the end of that week. Interestingly, right now, the options market is not implying a move that big, right now implying a little bit under 5%. But options traders are remaining bullish. The most active options contract we saw today are the 900 strike calls that expire at the end of the week. Those were trading for just under $9, and about 62,500 of those call contracts traded, although I should point out that nine of the top 10 most active options in Tesla were all short dated calls. So it seems that options traders, retail traders in particular, are making bullish bets going into earnings and betting that the stock could approach those all time highs that we saw earlier this year. Dan, what's your take on all this? And, you know, the correlation that Adam had mentioned to Bitcoin was fascinating. Point nine. That's a high correlation. Yeah, well, you know, think about it, Mel. I mean, these are basically two trillion dollars in assets have been memed into existence over the last 18 months to two years. And when you think about it, I mean, you know, we talk about meme stocks, little companies that really don't deserve their valuation. Well, here's a nearly one trillion dollar market cap company that a lot of people are convinced deserves its valuation, despite the fact they have low single digits global market share and probably 60 percent of the global market cap um, of autos. So I found um, Adam Jonas's take really interesting. I also find it. He said he started out the conversation by saying your viewers have made this happen. Well, they made it happen through memes and it looks like they're making it happen through call options. So all the power to these people out there. All right. Mike Coe, thank you out there. We'll see you on the full show Options Action Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, get ready to rumble. The battle lines have been drawn between Walmart and Target. One top analyst picking sides, so who's the better bet? Our traders are ready to weigh in. Plus, an ugly day for Ulta Beauty. Shares falling on a guidance update, but one of our traders says the move looks overdone. We'll break down the big opportunity in this name when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. It is the big box battle. Two retailers going head to head. In one corner, we've got Walmart. Goldman Sachs adding the name to its conviction buy list, citing the company's profitable e-commerce business growth in grocery and strong inventory compared to peers. In the other corner, Target. Goldman removing the retailer from its conviction buy list. Analysts expecting a slowdown in revenue growth for the company. So let's get ready to rumble. Which name are you betting on? Karen, I sort of know the answer to this, but why? 
Well, I'm betting on Target, but I'm not not betting on Walmart. I have a position there, too, but I have a much bigger bet in Target. I read the piece. They make some good points. They expect some margin improvement at Walmart. To me, though, I think Target's doing everything Walmart's doing, and Target's much cheaper. And I think the mix at Target, which is less grocery, more uh, merchandise apparel, home, that kind of thing, with a wider margin. So I, I like their mix better. I like their valuation better. I like their momentum better. So I like Target better is the bottom line. I don't dislike Walmart. I'm long. But to me, they weren't saying they just were removing Target from the list. They made Target leave the party. I don't know why. I, I think Target's a great guest at the party. <laughs> Tim? Walmart. And, and it's hard to argue with Karen's argument in favor of an overweight on Target. You know, part of this for me is actually stock performance. If you look at Target, it's outperformed Walmart. Uh, by 45% year to date. I mean, it's been kind of absurd when you consider the outperformance. So it's a, you know, the stocks relative to each other, it's a two standard deviation move. And so people that look at that stuff say, uh, I'd rather own Walmart here. I'd rather own Walmart in terms of their e-commerce penetration and where they're going. And they're going from a uh, mostly grocery play into increasing into more general merchandise. I like their ability to do that. I like their ability to push around the supply chain, especially in an inflationary environment. Food inflation is actually good for these guys. Um, so I, I, look, I think they're on the right path. And I think the secular tailwinds, which help both of these companies, help Walmart more, more in this environment because they're bigger. All right. Well, Kramer's weighing in on this retail battle royale. You can read all about it in the CNBC Investing Club newsletter. Sign up right now at CNBC.com backslash investing club or by using the QR code on the side of the screen. We've got a market flash on restaurant operator Brinker International. Let's get to Kate Rogers. It's got the details. Kate. Hey, Melissa, that's right. Brinker releasing some selected results uh, for the first quarter of its fiscal year 2022, and the stock taking a hit by about 10 percent here. The company is saying that labor and commodity challenges are weighing on its restaurant operating margins, which decreased to 10.4 percent in Q1 of 22, 2022 rather versus 11.6 percent the same quarter in 2021. The company's CEO said we're responding to these COVID headwinds with increased focus on hiring and retention efforts and working with our partners to gain further stabilization of the supply chain environment. In addition, we've taken immediate incremental pricing actions, increasing our full year target to three to three and a half percent to offset inflationary costs and protect margins as we move forward. The company also has an investor day tomorrow, so I'm sure much more to come. But once again, labor, inflation, supply chain, all issues in the restaurant space here. Back over to you. Kate, thanks. Kate Rogers. Guy, that's a pretty sharp move. Pretty sharp move. Now, the stock is off 45%, I think, since the February all-time high of 78 or so. So this stock has already showed some weakness. Now it's just getting sort of, I guess, accelerated to the downside. Now, you would look at this and say maybe it's going to exhaust itself, but it's going to be very hard for them to pass on these costs. Margins obviously got whacked. I think that's going to continue, and I don't think this is just a one-corner phenomenon. So if you're thinking about buying the weakness tomorrow, I think I would say think again. Uh, Give this at least a couple of days, if not more. All right. Coming up, a beautiful opportunity. AltaShare is dropping 10.5% today, but one of our traders says the move looks overdone. We'll break down the trade and later a turning point for China. China Tech rallying again today, so is the worst over for this beaten down trade. All that and more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a buzzkill in the beauty aisle. Shares of Ulta dropping more than 10% after giving long-term guidance that disappointed investors. The stock handing in its worst day since March of last year. But Karen says the sell-off looks overdone. Karen, you bought some today. Some more. I 
did. I bought some near the end of the day and was down like a quick maybe four or five bucks on that. But to me, you know, they had this big investor day and the stock, if you look at where it was September 30th, was right around here. So it had a big run up going into it. The analysts or the investor day should have been called lowering the bar because that's what they did. They talked about uh, same store sales growth that was a little bit disappointing and margins being 13 to 14 percent that people found a little bit disappointing. I think that run up uh, had people thinking maybe they would get closer to mid teens. All that having been said, though, I thought they were kind of sandbagging. Remember, this is a new ish CEO, uh, David Kimball, who he started in June. So you know how you and I always talk about, oh, they'll kitchen sink the first quarter. It took him like four months. But to me, it felt uh, sandbagging, giving himself a little bit of room. So I think he could beat those numbers. And so I bought a little bit of stock. I think that I should have waited the three days. I think we'll see analysts lower their targets here. But um, I like it. So I'm going to buy more. I'll try to be a little more patient. It's not my strongest suit, but that's my plan. All right. Coming up, an all-clear for China. The KWEB ETF rallying again today, so has a beaten-down trade finally turned a corner. Do not go anywhere. Fast Money is live from the Nasdaq market site. We'll be back right after this. Check out our chart of the day. You're taking a look at the Crane Shares China Internet ETF, ticker KWEB. It rallied another 4% today. It's now up more than 20%. In just the past two months, the index on a steady climb higher following a summer sell-off driven by China's sweeping crackdown on big tech. Its top holdings, Tencent, Alibaba, JD.com, all up more than 10% since mid-August. Tim, you think the worst could be over for the trade? Well, certainly you need to see some levels above these levels to say that technically you've broken that downtrend on BABA. It's probably 186, which is the 100 day. Um, you know, people talk about slowing growth in China overall in consumption. And that's I've seen some analysts downgrade their their GMV targets on Alibaba. But that's not the story. And the story really is, is the breakdown. They, what's interesting about the K-Web, the eighth or ninth weighted stock in the K-Web is NetEase, which arguably as an online gamer and company that, that, that not only creates computer games, but online gaming was in the eye of the storm, this isn't a name that's absolutely broken that downtrend and, and really has had a, an enormous run and seemingly tells you a change in character. So, um, look, I, I think we've never questioned the, the importance of these companies globally, certainly at home, and some of them are now being given a little more green light. JD over Baba here, just because I don't think they're as big of a, of a regulatory threat, and actually it has outperformed. Guy? Well, Vegas Sands reports tomorrow, I think after the bell. I you know, I hate to use the term spring-loaded because the fast-fire graphic is ready to be fired upon me, but it's interesting. I think Las Vegas Sands and earnings tomorrow looks really interesting. I think they just took too much out of it too fast. I don't think it has nearly um, – let's put it this way. I think all the China news is in that stock plus some. I think you could see Las Vegas Sands rally on the back of earnings. All right. Well, right now on CNBC Pro, how to navigate the China trade. We asked 20 top strategists how they are investing in that country. Read all about it at pro.cnbc.com. Up next, final trades. Welcome back. Do not miss an exclusive interview with Tudor Investment founder and CIO Paul Tudor Jones. That's 8.30 a.m. Eastern time on Squawk Box here on CNBC. Time now for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. 
Yeah, I'll be tuning into that. I, I think that the story around the airlines is very interesting. And some of these uh, stories that United gave us today in terms of where they're seeing international. But Delta is the chart. It's the highest quality name of the big three. Uh, actually hasn't broken that downtrend. Take a look. Karen Feinerman. Yes, on this, the anniversary of the 1987 crash. Uh, my final trade, it was an actual trade, which I usually have investments, and that was Facebook on the crescendo of bad news and the whistleblower and the outage and all that. I bought stock then to trade versus when I'm long and sold it today. Dan Nathan. Yeah, Mel, I just want to ask Guy, what was like trading the 87 crash versus the 29 crash? How are they different? How are they similar? Oh, we'll, we'll take it offline. We'll do that another time. Um, I agree with Guy. I didn't think that Netflix is something to buy right here. So I'd be a little patient if you want to buy it on the floor. Guy? That's very funny. Uh, ha, ha. By the you way, laughed. you might want to mention to Coco Beware ahead of options action that there are actually barbershops that are open uh expedia on the back of the united news expe i'm sure he heard that thanks for watching fast see you back here tomorrow mad money starts right now